Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. Now, Sunday we went through chapter 9, but we, we kind of touched on just a few aspects. We are going to, no doubt, touch on those things again to some degree, but also look at a few other things that are taking place here in Joshua chapter 9. And I got to tell you, I, I so love this book. It, every time I go through it in a time of study, it, it seems so just appropriate for the things that I'm going through in my life and the things that I need. It is a constant reminder of what it is to live a life that is victorious and that that's really what God wants, is for us to live lives that are victorious. And many times we settle for so much less than what God desires to give us. And the reason isn't God's lack, the reason is our lack. And so as we continue through this book, understand that there, just as God had promised this land for his nation and fulfilled it hundreds of years after the promise, he was faithful. God is still faithful. And that he will fulfill his promise and he will complete the work that he's begun in each of us. And it's his desire to do that. In verse 1, it says, Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, Gesundheit, and they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. Now, here we have a description of the three areas that basically compose the Canaan land. We've got the western region, the hill country, and then along the Mediterranean. And so these are three territories that we're going to see that become occupied by the nation of Israel. But then we also see that these enemies unite. They unite against Israel. And we know from some letters, there's actually uh, Amarna letters that were written around 1375 to 1350 BC, that these groups of people were at war with each other. But they came together to fight against the nation of Israel. And because they had heard the things that were happening, they thought, we need to put our differences aside and we need to fight against these people. And it's interesting that that still can be the case many times. We'll find that people have an indifference and attitude towards many beliefs or many faiths, but when it comes to Christianity, now you're crossing the line. They'll tolerate other beliefs. They'll allow them to come into the schools and share, but we don't want Christianity. And we see that in our society and I think throughout the world. It's interesting that even in areas of blasphemy, if someone stubs their toe, they don't say, oh, Buddha, you know, they'll say Jesus Christ. They, they have those kinds of terms that come out of them. Why? There's, there's something about the truth that there is opposition to. And so Jesus said, don't think it's strange when people come against you 
when they persecute, persecute you for my name's sake. They did it to the prophets. They did it to me. They're going to do it to you. When the truth makes a stand and pushes forward, there is going to be an attack. And they will all gather together to attack and try and come down on God's people and on the truth that God is representing. One of the things I think is interesting here is this chapter starts off with these two verses about these nations coming together. But we don't see Joshua panicking. We don't see Joshua worrying about it. In fact, the, the rest of the chapter goes on. It doesn't even mention these people. It deals with the Gibeonites. And I think it's an important thing that we understand that I think Joshua was understanding is, you know what? If God is for us, who can be against us? God had done miraculous things to Jericho and giving us the victory. He had cleansed us with AI and purged out the things that were wrong and again gave us victory. God has told us that this belongs to us. He's going to allow us to go into us this land and occupy. Why should we be afraid? In Isaiah 54, 17, it says, No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Do we believe that? What about Psalm 37, verse 1 and 2? It says, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. We need to recognize that those things that come against us, they're temporary. That God is for us. That nothing that is formed against us is going to stand. That is going to prevail in the things that matter. Now, let's be real. But let's understand what is being said because we are still subject to illness. We are still subject to disease. We are still subject to poverty. We are still subject to a lot of things that happen in the world. God's people are not immune to the fall of this world. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You see, the hope isn't that nothing bad is going to happen to us. The hope is that God is with us and is going to see us through. Because what we see is temporary. It's subject to change. But what is unseen, it's eternal. And when we connect with the eternal, we see things clearly. We see things as they really are. Our problem is we focus so much on the temporary. And we're going to see that that actually takes place here in verse 3. We're going to see that they are deceived by what they see. In verse 3 it says, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse or to trickery or they wanted to basically deceive them. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. 
All the brand, bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. And so we see they're putting on a scam. They're trying to appear one way when really they were another. They lived nearby, but they had heard. They heard what God did to, to, with Joshua to Jericho, that fortified city, and with Ai, it was another prominent city. And so instead of joining these other nations to fight against them, they said, we need to do something else. And so they got this delegation together and we see the extent that they went through. First it says that they, they took donkeys instead of horses. Donkeys were animals of the poor. As to not give them an impression that they're a mighty nation. They, they're a delegation. There's these kind of lowly animals. They got the wineskins and they made sure they look old. Their shoes look old. The bread was old. Everything looked like they had traveled from a distance. They went all out. And you can see them conniving. Have you ever done this with your parents or maybe your kids have done this to you where they plan something to deceive? <laughs> All the parents are looking at their kids. Have you ever done that to me? <laughs> well, you have to make up the story and you've got to make sure all your bases are covered. Okay, I'm going to your house. When my mom calls, tell her that this... And you, you've got this plan of how to work it out to make sure that the deception is faultless. They can't find the problem with it. And, and, you know, you try and cover all your bases and the truth usually comes out. Someone slips up somewhere somewhere down the line. But they were trying to make sure everything was covered. They, they went to this extreme length to make sure that these people thought they were someone that they really were not. Now, we didn't go into this Sunday, but I want to touch on it a little bit because it begs the question. They were deceitful. What would have happened if they would have been truthful? What would have happened if they came and they said, we don't want to fight against you? You see, God had told the nation to conquer the land and utterly destroy those. And we, we talked a little bit Sunday about how there was 400 years of just depravity in the land and how the time of the Amorites, their iniquity had not yet been full and how God had given them 400 years and finally said, enough. But what would have happened if this group of people would have went to Joshua and said, we surrender we don't want to be annihilated. We want to surrender ourselves to you. After all, Rahab did that. The prostitute who was in Jericho. She was deceptive, but to her own king and her own people for the nation's sake. And here we see deception working in another way. And you wonder what would have happened if that would have been the case. And I think of Abraham reasoning with God over Lot and him being in Sodom and says, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if 50 are there? What if 40? What if 30? What if 10? 
God says, no, I wouldn't destroy the whole city if there was ten. And so Abraham, Abraham tries to, to bring him out, but God has to destroy the city and, and saves Lot, his wife, and his daughters. But you see, God's desire isn't to destroy everybody. He doesn't want to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And I just wonder, would these people have said, okay? Is it possible that God used them and their craftiness to have mercy on them? Because sometimes we could be so religious, can't we? Remember when Jesus' disciples went and were picking the grains of wheat and the Pharisees said, they're doing what is unlawful. They're, they're working on the Sabbath, grinding up the grain. They're not supposed to do that. And Jesus told them about David and taking the showbread that was supposed to be only for the priests. But he allowed that bread to be used for David and his men because they were starving. And he said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That they strained a gnat but swallowed a camel. They missed the heart of God and what he really desired to do. And, and I wonder what would have happened if they would have came clean and said, hey, this is who we are, what we're doing. But they didn't. They came and they were deceptive. In verse 7 it says, The men of Israel said to the Hivites, now this is a clue because they spoke a certain language, but perhaps you live near us. In other words, you talk like these people around us. How can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to those two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled with new wine, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Now, Joshua asks, who are you? And they never answer that question. They never say, we're the Gibeonites. Because then they say, well, oh, you're our neighbor. They say, we're your servants. And then they go on with their deception. And isn't that so true of deception? It, it always steers you away. It reminds me of lawyers. You know, did you do this? Well, and they give an answer that doesn't quite admit the whole truth. All my children should have been lawyers. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> Were you at so-and-so's house? Well, I was down the street, and we were with so-and-so, but we weren't in his house. And it's like, okay, and then you have to ask another question to get a little deeper into the truth. Okay, if you weren't, were you in his front yard? No, we weren't in the front yard. It's like, okay, you were in the backyard, you know, what did I have to find out? You were in the guy's house, in the backyard, you know, 
setting fires. Why, why couldn't I just come to that? Why couldn't you tell me? It's like, no, I'm just going to weave my way around the truth. And that's what they're doing. And that's what deception does. Is it doesn't say what is there, but it goes around it to try and, and give the impression. It's interesting that the commandment isn't thou shalt not lie. It's thou shalt not bear false witness. Because there's a difference. You see, you can bear false witness and not lie just by not giving someone the whole truth. But you have to come clean if it's bearing false witness. And that's what they were doing. They were bearing false witness. They were not coming clean with the things that were there and the things that were said. Now, it's important to see that they are doing this for their lives. They are, if we don't do this, we're going to die. And, and these people are, are the Joshua and the elders are asking all the right questions, except we're going to see in verse 14, it says, Then the, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Now, when it says that sampled their provisions, it wasn't just like, well, let's see what this moldy bread tastes like. <laughs> what they were doing is making a treaty. This was part of the treaty process. We will eat from your things. It is an agreement. We are binding ourselves to you. At this point, they had said, okay, we're, we're going to go along with you. And then when it says they did not inquire of the Lord, that's an interesting verse. Because it makes you wonder, what would have happened if they would have inquired? Would God have squealed on them? <laughs> They're Gibeonites, you know. <laughs> what would happen? What would God have done? And what it means by inquire of the Lord most likely is talking about the Urim and the Thummim, the, the black and the white stone that the priests would take when they would inquire of the Lord what they should do. And he'd reach in and pull out one of the stones and it was kind of like drawing lots to see how God was going to judge in the situation. So it's very likely that that might have been what was regarded as far as inquiring from the Lord. But we... We don't know what it means, but it's there for a reason. In other words, they were thinking things through based on what they saw, but you see, they did not see all that was there. They only saw the surface. They only saw the superficial. They didn't see all that was there. They, they trusted in their ability to diagnose the situation but they didn't diagnose it right. Proverbs 3, 4 and 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. And so there was a lack of acknowledging God in the situation, and so the deception was complete. They, they believed the lie. They believed what they saw, and it wasn't the truth. Now, that is so true for us in so many ways. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says that we are to live by faith, not by sight. But most of the times, if I'm honest, I live by sight and not by faith. I live by the things I see and perceive and not really in my faith in God. My faith in God is there, but it doesn't direct my life as much as the things I see. If I'm honest, most of the time, I look at the statement on the bank. You know, I go online and check our balance. Ah! God help! 
Oh no, what I gotta do? Okay, I gotta pull, I gotta do this, I gotta, and then I, that panic, I start hyperventilating, you know, you get the bag, my wife brings a brown paper bag, it's okay Sam, we're gonna make it, you know. I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to, to find all these things out. How we're gonna make ends meet. Don't pay that, don't do this. And where's my trust in God at that point? Well, I still believe in you God, but I gotta work this out. And I don't fall on my knees and I don't pray. And I don't seek the Lord. And who knows what would happen if I did. There have been times where we have. And, and you know, the absence of prayer, who can tell how much suffering we go through because we don't inquire of the Lord? How, how much have we suffered because we've neglected that area of our lives. And it really owns us what we believe. It really challenges us in whether this is who you are, how much you really believe, or is it just something you're saying? Are you going through the motions? This faith in God, is it real? Or is it convenient? Does it have a hold of your life or just certain circumstances? And it really challenges us what we believe based on what we see and how we conduct our lives. How many professing Christians lie during income tax because they can get away with it? Because they can get more money. <laughs> I wasn't asking for hands. <laughs> but those are the circumstances that, that challenge us. I, I remember one person came up to me and they said, well, you know, the person at the grocery store gave me, you know, $20 too much. And I just thanked God, you know. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, that's dishonest. <laughs> well, I needed the money. I know, but God, God's going to provide for you without you taking someone else's money. That's what the scriptures are there for. Give us guidelines so we don't, you know, well, it was easier if I just killed him. You know, I mean, it's like, no, you can't do that. There, there are boundaries that we have to, to live by and we have to abide by. And so... They did not see things clearly because they were deceived by the deception of their eyes. Turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 21. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 16. Is that right? Uh, I think I copied it wrong. No, it's not there. First Samuel 16. First Samuel 16 we're going to see the anointing of David. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long you, will you mourn for Saul? Saul was king at the time. Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I tell my wife that all the time. <laughs> For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass but by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Here we see a situation where the one who was not likely, David, he wasn't even brought to the party. Hey, we're having important people here. Go take care of the sheep. And you think about it, I mean, all his brothers are there, but he doesn't even get invited. And that's the one the Lord chose. And I love how it says the first one, Eliab, and he thought, surely this is the one. I don't know what was about that guy. He must have been something else, you know. He must have been the, the George Clooney or Brad Pitt of, of his sons or something. But it wasn't the one. Why? Because God doesn't look on the outward. He looks at the heart. And we need to be careful that we do not deceive ourselves based just on the things that we see. How many relationships start because of and based on just appearance? How many guys just want the pretty girl? How many girls just want the handsome young man? And they never get to know who the person really is because they are just basing it on the outward appearance. And 
they find themselves in a world of trouble later on if they are not careful. And so Joshua and the elders did the same thing. They based it only on what they saw. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They made a treaty with these people. They made an oath with them. Verse 15, it says, Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So now all the leaders have got together and say, okay, we agree. We're going to leave you guys alone. Verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were the neighbors living near them. Doesn't that always happen? The truth will find you out. It will come about. You can hide it for years maybe, but sometimes it's just three days. Sometimes it's three hours. Sometimes it'll happen right there. The truth finds you out. And sure enough, three days later, boom, there they are. They find out they're their neighbors. And then look what happens. Verse 17, it says, So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kifar, Kifrah, Biroth, and kiroth Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They did not attack them because they had sworn an oath. I wonder if oaths mean the same to us today as they did at that time. I mean, these people lied to us. Surely we have reason to go against them, to break that oath. They, they deceived us. And haven't we heard that in marriages? They deceived me. I thought they were this way, but they were that way. Everyone's deceived in marriage. Once we get married, we find out the truth. Otherwise, she never would have married me. I had, I had to, you know, I had to act nice. I, I had to do all those things. We all put our, our best face forward so that we have that appearance. And then you find out the dark things about this person. And, and you know, that's the, that's the scary thing, but that is the, the great thing about that relationship. You see, my wife knows the worst of me. She knows the worst of who I am, but she still believes the best in me. And, and that's what that relationship allows. That even though she, she knows what's bad about me, she still wants what's best for me. And so that I, I don't have to pretend. I, I can be honest in who I am. It doesn't mean I can live in a life that is displeasing to, to God or to her. But we can have honesty. We can have a genuine relationship because I would rather have a genuine relationship with her knowing everything about me than a pretend relationship, one that wasn't as deep and her just knowing the good things. Because now there is depth to our relationship. Now I know that even though she knows those things about me, we are still committed, that oath still stands. It's there. And it's there for a reason. And we have to recognize the importance of oaths 
And the marriage is the first one that comes to my mind because it's something that I think is applicable to these situations and why it's so important. Because they made this oath, they kept it. God honored it. And we'll see that in a little bit. But first, verse 18, it says, The Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. And I love this backseat driving. You know, they grumbled against the leaders. It's so easy to know what should have been done, isn't it? We all have great hindsight. I mean, it's that way in sports. You know, oh, you shouldn't have gone for that. You should have tried this. You know, if you wouldn't have done that, you would have done this. You could have got the score. You could have got a goal. Whatever it is, we are all backseat drivers. And they came to this place and they all grumbled. You know, the leaders did what they thought was best and they blew it. They were short-sighted. They, they didn't see things clearly. But you know what? Most likely that was the best of what they had in the nation. I, I, it's hard to imagine that others would have made a different choice. Well, if I was there, I would have inquired of the Lord. You know, we all, uh, you know how that is. It's like, well, if I were there, I would have done this. And I, everyone knows what to do after the fact. And I love how they are grumbling against them. And it's always going to be that way. It doesn't matter if it's in politics. It doesn't matter if it's in sports. It doesn't matter if it's in the church. It doesn't matter if it's in the family. There's always going to be this grumbling against whoever's making the decisions. You know what? That comes with the territory. It's part of being in charge. And you're going to make mistakes. You've got to deal with it. And people are going to complain. You've got to deal with it. If it gets too bad, they'll fire you. Unless, you know, you're the husband, hopefully that doesn't happen. You'll still have your job. You'll just, you won't get to eat. Um, I'm just joking. My wife has never withheld food from me. <laughs> you can tell. Uh, verse 19, it says, But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise, so the leader's promise to them was kept. Now, it's important to realize that this promise was kept because Saul broke this promise. And now turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. I knew we would get there. Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. says, During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul and his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. 
Three years of famine. Why? Because he broke the oath. There are consequences when you break the oath that you make to the Lord. There are consequences. And some are severe, three years of famine, some we may not ever see the full effect of. But you see, God took the oath seriously, and God held his people to this oath. And, and what's interesting is that Saul did it for the zeal of Israel and Judah. In other words, he was trying to be the good king, trying to ratify things, trying to be dominant in this region. But his zeal led him past what God had put. It led him past the oath that God had made or that had been made to God for the Gibeonites. And so he broke that oath. The nation suffered because of it. And David had to rectify it. And, and some people were killed because they had to pay for the death that they had done and the harm that they had done to these people. And, and so we see the importance of this oath and how God cares about those things and how years later God remembered this oath for these people who were not his people but were survivors of the Amorites. God still held them. And you see, this last portion, I think, is really important because it's bringing everything back to a place of how God is able to work things out for the good. In verse 22, it says, Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Then answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servants Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. Joshua saved them from the Israelites. Now that's, that's just a beautiful verse when you think of the fact that Joshua means Jesus. He saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place of the Lord would choose and that is what they are to this day. Now, this is what I think is the most powerful part of this chapter, and, and I talked about it Sunday, and you can't help but talk about it again. God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, promised to give them this land. Israel had made a mistake, had not inquired of the Lord, were deceived, but had made an oath with these people. And because of that oath to the Lord for these people, they allowed these people to live. But what did they do with these people? What did they do with the oath that they had made? Instead of saying, okay, you're going to, you know, 
clean out the outhouses or, or you're going to do this. They brought him into the most holy place. Brought them into the tabernacle at this time because the temple wasn't built. Brought him into the service of the Lord. You see, those who were strangers who were foreigners, who now they had a, an agreement with, what should we do with them? We need to have them influenced as much as we can by our God. And they brought them in close. We need to recognize that whatever oath we make to the Lord, what we then need to do is cover that oath by bringing it to the Lord himself. And instead of pushing the Gibeonites away, they brought them in closer. Because the covenant we make with them is under the covenant that we made with our God. And he is the one who oversees it all. And if we had that same mindset, you know, we, we've got this attitude so many times in, in various ways. We have it in just Christendom itself, in ministry. You know how many people come to faith in Christ because they serve alongside of another person? They go down to Mexico or they do some work because they want to do something that's good and they find themselves working side by side with these people and it starts rubbing off on them. Finally, you start seeing these people coming to this understanding of, you know what, the God that you're serving, I want to serve that God too. Why? Because I see them. Why? Because I'm involved with these areas. Now, of course, you can't have a, a non-believer, you know, up in front teaching, you know, a Bible study. But why can't you have them serving alongside and, and setting up chairs and helping things out? I remember, Omar, I don't want to throw you under the bus, but... I remember when you were over at E3, you'd come and help set up and be there setting up and being a part of just helping things out. But he had not yet made a profession of faith to Christ. And it wasn't until later when we went out to lunch and, and we talked, but he was there, a part of this. And I, I think it was in that time that he saw what the Lord was doing and wanted to be a part of it. And you see, we need to have this attitude. Instead of keeping people outside of our walls, let's bring them inside and let's get them as close to the altar as we can. They were serving as woodcutters and they would put the wood that was there for the fire, for the offering, and they brought in the water that was there for purifying. They were near the altar. They were near the things of God instead of keeping them at a distance. And we've got this mindset, well, you know, you've got to keep your distance Instead, let's bring them in and let's bring them as close to the altar as we can. And in our oaths to the Lord, in our marriages, because every marriage I know struggles. And we've made this oath to God for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Sometimes I'm just so sick and it consumes me. Bring it 
to the altar of the Lord. Bring it to that most sacred place and allow God to be a part of that oath that you made and the frustration and the things and the hurts that you're going through. Instead of saying, well, I'll be faithful, but I'm going to push it away, bring it in. Because healing only comes when the Lord does it. And the regeneration and the transformation that takes place with these people isn't going to happen if you keep them outside the tabernacle. It's only going to happen if you bring them in. And so this mistake that they made, this oath that they held, whatever it is that we do, instead of pushing it outside, bring it in to the most holiest place, the temple of the Lord, and allow God to influence those people. Because that, if we're going to have to live together now, if we're going to have to endure each other's company, then let's do it here at the altar of the Lord. If we are going to have to live our lives together with this oath that we've made in marriage, then let's do it here before the Lord. I'm not going to push it out. I'm going to bring it in and see if God doesn't cover with his promise and his oath to us. Because remember, a covenant is between two people. It was between the Israelites and the Gibeonites, and it's between us to God and God to us. Do you realize that God has made a covenant with us? That he has given us promises. Now, who's going to gain from this covenant? I mean, think about it. Us or God? Who, who's, who's on the winning side of this? What am I going to give God? The lint out of my pockets? I mean, what, what do we have that's worth anything? But he can take what we have and make it of value if we will bring it to him. And so in this chapter, what I love is the deception that is brought into a place of service. It is brought into a place of devotion. That's what we talked about Sunday. It was deceiving, but they ended up devoting it to the Lord. What in your life has gone from a place of deception that needs to bring into a place of devotion? Because that's what God wants to do. He wants to take our lives and make out of them things that were deceitful and bring them to things that are devoted completely to him. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I, I love the truthfulness of the scripture. And I love how it fits so well with the things that we experience and live. And how you, you've shown us, Lord, how we are to live in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our oversights or undersights. And Lord, when we do make mistakes, when we fail to inquire of you, when we, we live our lives based on superficial things and not on the truth of how things really are, and we find ourselves now in a... a 
a place of frustration or an oath that is hurtful or possibly damaging. Lord, you don't abandon us. You allow us to redeem these things and make them of use. And, and Father, that is what you desire of all of us, God. You desire us to move deeper into this commitment to you and you desire us to bring those who are around us into it as well. And God, help us. Help us to be merciful, even as Joshua saved the Gibeonites from the nation who wanted to kill them, wanted to wipe them out. Help us to be like you and wanting mercy and not wanting judgment. Help us to be like David, wanting to rectify the situation and not like Saul, who wanted to just be zealous and conquering. May we have mercy when we see mistakes in our own lives and in those that we love. When, when we find those areas of shortcoming and deception. May we react in a way that is like you. May, again, we show mercy, God. And God, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us and how you have over and over and over again, God, forgiven me, cleansed me, and put my feet back on the path and how you have made a covenant with me that if I will draw near to you, you will draw near to me. That you will not leave us, that you will not forsake us. That if we seek you, we will find you. If we ask, you will answer. If we knock, it will be opened. God, may we have faith in you and in this covenant, this agreement that we have made with you because of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.